This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the iFreaks show, episode number 162. This week on our panel, we have Caleb Hicks. Hey, I'm here in Salt Lake City today. Lane Mosley. Oh, there. I'm out in Utah. And we have just been joined by James Zuber. Hello. I'm still at West Coast time, so sorry. It's okay. We're glad to have you. And I'm Andrew Madsen, also in Salt Lake City. And we have a guest today. Her name is Veronica Ray. Veronica, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure thing. So I work on iOS at the video team at LinkedIn, and I live in New York City. Nice. The LinkedIn app is actually a, is a pretty good app, but do you work on the LinkedIn app itself, or are you doing other stuff on the video team? So I'm doing a bit of both. I'm working on a new app that I can't really talk about that'll be launched soon. And I've also been working on features in the main LinkedIn app that will be, um, you know, related to the new app. Ah, cool. Well, we brought you on today to talk about dependency injection and, and mocking in Swift. And this is something that I think you know more than any of us about. So maybe you could give us just a brief introduction of what dependency injection is and, and why mocks are an important part of that. Yeah, sure thing. So the simplest definition of dependency injection I found was, you know, giving an object its instance variables. So the idea is you don't want an object creating, you know, everything it needs to function. You, you know, creating uh, services, uh, creating all, all these things. You just give the object what it needs when you initialize it, and then it can uh, make your objects a lot more independent and easy to um, compose because you can, you know, you're just giving it what it needs. So, you know, it can be used in more places and it, it decouples your code a lot. So why is decoupling code important? I think we've all heard that that's important, but why, why is it important? For a couple of different reasons, but I think the main one that comes to my head is just that it makes it easier to uh, reason about your code. And there was a WWDC video this year where they talked about, you know, local reasoning. So if, you know, maybe you're new to a code base, maybe you've been looking at it for a while, but at the particular, you know, class or wherever you're working on in your code, it makes it easier to debug it, reason about it. And, um, you know, you don't have these bugs that happen and you're like, you know, totally baffled by why this bug is happening because maybe some totally unrelated part of your code is affecting it. It's definitely better for thinking about your code and it's uh, better for avoiding these really nasty bugs that, you know, could take so much time to debug. All right. Uh, So I I like everything you just talked about, Veronica. Particularly this local reasoning idea is is interesting to me because it means that when you're reading a piece of code, you have, as I understand it, it means you're reading a piece of code. Maybe it's unfamiliar to you. Maybe it's new. You know, you you didn't, you last worked on it a long time ago, but you're not having Mm -hmm. to maintain so much mental state even just to figure out what this code is doing because you're thinking about the code you're looking at instead of all this other code that's in a million other places. Does that sound about right? 
Yeah, no, that's that's definitely right. And it seems like this has some implications for testing as well. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, testing isn't the only great reason to do this, but it ends up, you know, being one of the key reasons for doing this and, you know, what I've been really thinking about and focusing on. Um, just in terms of a lot of the material for that real-world marking talk at TriSwift in Tokyo was based on the work I did going from basically no testing in this new app we were working on to having, you know, a, a decent amount of testing that made us feel, you know, comfortable uh, continuing to ship code. So creating mocks in Objective-C was one thing, but now creating it in creating mocks in Swift is definitely a lot more, it, it, it's a, a different challenge. So how, how have you approached that and what are some best practices with uh, mocking in, in Swift? Yeah, so... I started thinking about marking in Swift just because when you write tests, it just it just comes up. And um, I have a Java background, so you know we have Makito, and I've I've used some of these marking frameworks before. So when I started writing tests, you know one of the main classes that came up where I started thinking about marking was uh, init user defaults. So you start writing tests where you're setting up init user defaults. Maybe you're making sure certain defaults are set, and then you have to do a teardown. And like you see this, you know, code bloat where you have this code that you keep writing everywhere, and you start thinking about like, you know, how can I reduce this duplicated code? You know, what are the implications if we change the real user defaults in this test? You know, does that matter? And you know, you start thinking about, you know, how to write good tests. And some of like the key things that I realized about writing good mocks is choosing well what gets mocked. So mock, writing a mock for something has upfront investment, it has maintenance, uh, maintenance costs. So and you don't you don't have to write mocks for everything. Um, you have to think about you know is not using the real class going to uh, really benefit your tests. Maybe um, you're worried about having slow tests, so you have a mock in a URL session. Or maybe you're worried about messing with a user's data, or you're worried about sending real notifications. And I've, I've thought through, you know, a lot of these different issues. And for our own app, you know, I came to the conclusion about what classes we should mock in and what classes we really shouldn't write mocks for. And, you know, that's kind of the one of the bigger things. And then when you go specifically for iOS, you start thinking about like, you're, you're interacting with all these Apple framework classes, like, should you write mocks for them? <laughs> so that's like a whole can of worms that I also thought about. <laughs> so, so I have a good experience. Well, I wouldn't say a good experience, but I have experience with this. Yesterday, actually, I was testing a bit of code that you wrote a file to disk. So that was pretty simple. But then I decided to um, upload that file to CloudKit. The moment I did that and I uploaded this code to the build server, all of a sudden it crashed and went crazy because you know there was no entitlements for CloudKit. And honestly, I wouldn't want that code when I'm testing to hit CloudKit. So. Yeah. I did not use dependency injection for this at all. And instead, I added this nasty code that checked to say, hey, am I testing? Then don't do this. And I felt bad about that. I didn't like it. So, <laughs> I, you know, I'm wondering, you know, in that case, how, how would you describe, 
you know, changing this and using dependency injection to solve this problem? Yeah, the way I think I had when I worked with like NS Notification uh, Center, it was kind of a long process of actually doing it. And even though I didn't end up using the NS Notification Center mock, I'm really glad I went through the process of, yeah, seeing how would you do this the right way or how would you avoid, you know, doing like a, some nasty code. So uh, what what I would do is, you know, think about where CloudKit is, is used in your app. Like if you did dependency injection, how many classes would need to have CloudKit passed in as a dependency? What I would do is try writing, you know, if you're writing like a, a mock, I've really never written mocks for CloudKit, but for, you know, any kind of class you're using, or I would try writing, you know, a simple mock and making it as simple as possible because you know i'm i'm sure like whatever you could write for a cloud kit would be could be very complicated if you wanted it to like match you know apple's apis closely but you, that's not really the the goal the goal is to um have your your mock do for you what you need. So maybe all you want to do is check that this certain function call was made or that this, you know, this instance variable changed. So what I would do is I would just think about what you don't want to do. You don't want to really upload this file for real and just make, you know, the simplest mock uh, to help you avoid your problem. And then, you know, in your code base, you know, use the mock instead of the real class. And I think if you don't, already have any dependency injection in your your app already like uh, that might take some work but yeah that's my process and I've done this for like in its notification center manager and its user defaults uh, are the two main ones that I've done this process for yeah that, that makes a lot of sense in fact I think I recall reading something in one of your blog posts where you you know had a mock that just set a flag saying yes you know this this function was actually called and I think, in, in my case at least, that would make uh, quite a bit of sense. Yeah, one of the pitfalls that I encountered when I made that my NS Notification Center uh, mock was that I tried to match it so closely with the real object that I was trying to basically have all these functions that were subtly different and I was creating this mapping of observers and keys and values and getting all the types right and I, it was a really, you know, it was not a positive experience. And, you know, someone on my team was like, so what are you trying to do here? Like, are you trying to just exactly recreate in this notification center? Or are we just trying to see that, you know, we actually set, we called this function. We actually, we actually set it. Or do we just want to avoid not sending real notifications? In that case, you could just have a seriously empty function. And I found when I talked to someone who actually successfully did a mock in its notification center in their app, what they did was just they wanted to make sure the function was called. And for them, it wasn't this, you know, painful experience where they were like, I'm never mocking in this notification center again. They were like, oh, yeah, this was useful. This was good. No, that's a that's a good point. And it speaks to like separating the responsibilities. And that's one of the reasons we use the notification centers to break up the responsibilities in your code. So if you're checking that the method's called, that's all that that, that method should be doing. And you mm-hmm. know, we test the other side in a different test, in a different class. So that's a good good approach. Is I wouldn't want to re-implement anything like NS user defaults or notifications. That, just, that sounds like a, a terrible headache. 
Well, not only do you not want to re-implement it, it seems to me like if you, you know, you're not actually, you're not trying to test the thing you're mocking either. You're trying to test the mm-hmm. thing that uses it, that depends on it. So it doesn't really make sense to implement all of the, all of the functionality that was there in the real thing anyway. Yeah, that's completely right. That's one of the pitfalls of, you know, when people are kind of having negative experiences with mocking. That's just a bad thing to do. Um, And another thing is it gets kind of dangerous and scary when you're you're trying to make your mock exactly like the real thing if it is a type you don't own. Because if you're you're mocking a class you wrote yourself, at least you know when you change that class. You're doing the extra work to update the mock, but there's no surprises. Like when Apple changes their API suddenly and suddenly there's a lot of surprises when your tests don't work anymore. The best approach is to really make your um, your mocks as simple as you need them to be. And don't, yeah, you're not testing the real thing. You mentioned this in your talk at, at TriSwift, but there's a framework in Objective-C at called OC mock that uh, was pretty is pretty widely used for mocking in Objective C and makes creating mocks somewhat easier than they are if you have to just write everything yourself. And you talk about uh, how we, OC mock is basically not worth using in Swift, even though you technically could. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what it really takes to write your own mock in Swift and, and maybe some of the Swift specific ways that you can really nicely write mocks? Oh, yeah. So the good news is that Uh, writing your own mocks isn't a huge amount of work. And uh, one of the great things that we have at our disposal is protocols. So what I would consider, you know, a really good practice that that people are really catching on to is, you know, creating your mock with protocols. You know, what I, I had like a user defaults protocol that had, you know, the key, like the key functions that I wanted to be part of my mock. And then I would have my mock conform to that protocol. And so that has a lot of nice benefits because when you're just conforming to a protocol, you don't need to take in all the instance variables of the of the superclass. And it can just make your mock, it just makes your mock a, a lot simpler. It's a good approach for like the framework types. If you want to do them, you can kind of extract the protocol and you can actually create an extension on the class itself with Swift, so you're actually accessing the methods that you've kind of defined in your class, but you don't, you don't need the entire thing. So your class isn't dependent on a full version of UI application or whatever framework type things you need. So it's a, it's a solid approach. But one of the things that really changed with Swift testing and mocking, like everyone did OC mock with Objective-C, mm-hmm. and you know, doing the standard old way of doing things, like in Java, earliest way of creating mocks is just subclassing class and overriding it, which was pretty tedious with Objective-C. So everyone just used OCMock because it was easy. A couple lines of code, you're up and running versus creating a header file, creating an implementation file, making sure everything lines up correctly, the header files line up. But mm-hmm. with Swift, it became very easy to create a new class. Um, either you're overriding it or you're just creating a protocol. So those type of things became very easy. I think early on when they announced Swift, I was like, how are we going to test this stuff? It's a static language. And I think Matt Thompson was one of the first people who said, hey, it's easy to create a, to do an override a class. You can do it inside the class so it doesn't pollute the, the namespace. You can, do it, can you do it inside a method? I can't remember. But it's trivial to create a class at this point. So that's the standard technique that I've seen that I've been using. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about what really sort of makes for, and, and we've covered some of this, but what sort of makes for well-done mocks. And part of the thing I'm looking at is for Swift stuff, and you've 
you talk in your try swift talk about about value types versus reference types when when you're making mm-hmm. mocks and that's an interesting thing too yeah and i think that's super interesting with uh some of the the changes and announcements made at wwdc because i feel like when i gave the talk i definitely feel like a lot of people knew about value types versus reference types and people were saying you know if you use value types, you don't have to write a mock for them because it's just, you know, data in, data out. And I and I think it can seem like a very daunting task to look in your code base and be like, okay, so how do I how do I make these reference types value types? And I, I think it's like just been an ongoing process for me um, whenever I see a reference type thinking like, could it be a value type? And really thinking through that and talking talking to people about it. But yeah, the the great thing about value types is yeah you don't you don't have to write mocks for them though something that i have done if there's if you have a value type but you have some kind of complex setup code you can maybe put that in maybe a separate class to like instantiate it and do the setup code so that you can reuse it e- easier one thing i was excited about was the new value types and foundation None of them really are, are ones that I would have written mocks for, but I think that's just such a great direction to go in. And I'm just so excited that we have what's new in Foundation for Swift was a session that was super great. And also there was a session about protocols and value types. I forgot the name of it, but I, I just think like value types are like really becoming a lot more popular and encouraged from Apple. And I think that's, and I love how Apple's using testing examples in their sessions this year. If you're really, you know, wanting to learn more about this, you know, there's definitely great, great resources. We unfortunately have a a short show today, so can't talk to you as long as we would like to. But before we wrap up, and I know there's a lot we didn't cover, but before we wrap up, is there anything you think that we really need to talk about that we have not talked about yet? Um, and and I, I let me. Uh, there's something I think we should talk about, which is what if mm-hmm. what if somebody wants to learn uh, a bunch more about this and and start writing good tests for their Swift code and and uh, you know learn about how to write good mocks and do all that. Yeah, definitely. And um, maybe they don't want to go back and read like a lot of the resources are from from Java, like a lot of the really the kind of classic resources that people point to or use Java examples, which is fine. But I, I would say, well, not to plug my own talk too much, but my talk is probably one of the few, you know, resources out there that are Swift specific. And I think that there's also some really good articles out there if you want to. I'm going to have two, two blog posts that are really helpful. One is the Mock, Mocks and Swift via Protocols blog post by Eli Perkins. So I'm just typing that in there. And then I think another really key thing to uh, understand is like, uh, why don't we have a mocking framework for Swift? And why is it not likely given Swift's design that we'll have one in the future? And there's a really great article called Swift, the only modern language without mocking frameworks. So it's really good, I think, to have to have some context and to understand like as you know swift developers and ios developers you know what is like the pond that we're in 
and how can we um, learn from other communities like Java, but also operate within the constraints um, and the also, you know, some of the great advantages we, we have. Like, for example, there's a new dependency injection framework that Square released last week called Cleanse, and it makes use of a Swift, you know, really great uh, type system. So I think one thing if I'm going to leave us with one thought is like, you know, it might seem like it's just bad news that we don't have an OC mock for Swift, but there's so much amazing innovation happening using the strengths that Swift has. So I want us to, you know, continue to write tests, continue to think about how to do great tests and take advantage of what Swift uh, offers us. Yeah, it's fun. It's I think it's it's actually fun and it, it's an exciting and good time for us to reevaluate reevaluate some of the things that we've done in the past and come up with uh, truly you know better and and best ways to do things uh, in Swift using the nice things about Swift instead of trying to shoehorn everything back into what we already did in Objective C. Well, I think this has actually been really interesting. It makes me want to learn more. It's something that I don't already know a lot about and would be nice to learn about and hopefully improve my code with. Uh, should we get to picks? Yeah. I have one quick thought, if you don't mind. Sure, Lane. You know, I haven't done a lot of dependency injection with, uh, you know, Apple platforms, but I, I wrote a bunch of node code um, a couple years ago, and it was strictly dependency injection. And I have to say from experience there, it's awesome, and it makes testing like a complete breeze and totally great. So any advancements that we can get, you know, in Swift and get people doing it, it, it overall it will help everybody out. But there's a lot to look forward to, in other words. Okay, well, let's get to picks. Let's see. Caleb, do you want to start us with your picks? Sure. My pick this week is the game. It's called Slither.io. Uh, you can play it online. It's also an iOS app, and I'm sure on other platforms as well. Some blog post came out uh, earlier this week mentioning that the developer of this app is making something like $100,000 a day right now. Uh, so it's a very popular game, but basically you, for me, it's perfect for driving, uh, when, when I'm at home and I'm just tired after a long day of work or, or whatever, and I just want something to relax with and kind of a mindless game and you, you play as a snake and you're trying to get longer, but there are other snakes that you are trying to avoid running into. So, uh, it's kind of like a massive multiplayer online snake game, uh, which is a lot of fun. The fact that somebody is making $100,000 a day from a game that kids played on their TI-83 calculators in high school 20 years ago kind of annoys me, but I'm also proud of him. Yeah, it's <laughs> a lot of fun. So check it out, slither.io or just slither on the App Store. Thanks, Caleb. Uh, let's see. James, do you have some picks for us? All right. I'm just going to go straight to self-promotion for my picks. So I, I did a couple blog posts about property injection and structure ingestion and testing with singletons that and you know, creating stubs and mocks for classes. So just chose a technique for you know, those singletons, which are hard to test if you use them the standard way, but actually can be fairly easy if you do your own dependency injection magic. Um, so they're both, they both cover Swift. So I'm just going to do a link to that. Great. Lane, do you have some picks for us? I do. I have two and they're slightly related to each other. Uh, the first one is I got to try out the HTC Vive this week, which is, I think, probably the best consumer virtual reality headset. 
And I have to say that I am extremely impressed and also very excited for what the future has to bring in virtual reality because it was totally awesome. Loved it. The other thing is I'm reading a book right now called The Eye of Minds by James Dashner. And it's also in the virtual reality space. Um, It kind of depicts a future where you know, we can, humans can get into sort of like a casket thing that hooks up little wires to your, your, like your nervous system and you go into a virtual world and it completely simulates reality because it, it's literally, you know, giving you all the normal sensations that we have and pairing that with, you know, seeing cool virtual reality. It's just kind of a cool thing to see where we might be able to go with that kind of technology. I haven't got to try one of those yet, but I know somebody that has one, and I need to check it out. The 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 Vive, I mean. If you can try one, it, you deserve to because it's pretty cool. <laughs> Veronica, do you have any picks for us? Yeah, I sure do. So one of my favorite gadgets that I've been using for a while is called Sense. It's by a company uh, named Hello. So it sits on your nightstand. And it's able to sense the environment around you, so the light, the sound, the humidity. And it also is paired with a a sleep tracker that you just clip onto your pillow. And I use it for the alarm feature. I'd say it's one of the most joyful gadgets I have because the alarm, when it sounds, it makes this amazing like um, musical noise and it lights up in all these bright colors. And to turn the alarm off, you give it like a nice little tap on the head. So I've been using it for a while and it's given me good information about my sleep quality and helped me like make changes in my environment so that I can sleep better. Cool. Uh, I've just got one pick today. My pick is a, is a Mac app called Script Debugger. This is basically an IDE for Apple Script. Seems like a strange pick, but uh, the developer of this just released version 6, I think, today, and he's cut the price in half, which is nice. But if you do anything with AppleScript, whether it's scripting apps, which I actually do occasionally, or if you're a developer, a Mac developer that uh, maintains an app that has an AppleScript dictionary, which I do, um, this is just a really, really valuable tool. It's It has a built-in debugger. Obviously, that's where the name comes from, but really it's like a whole IDE for AppleScript. It supports AppleScript Objective-C, which, which means you could actually write complete Mac apps in AppleScript if you really want to using the Objective-C bridge. And partly the reason I'm picking it is because it just is fun for me to see a developer that's putting so much love and attention into what is a really niche tool and just doing a great job with it. So that's my pick. I think that's everything. Thanks for coming on, Veronica. Uh, if, if people want to know more about you or, or find you, how can they do that? I'm very active on Twitter. My my Twitter handle is NerdAnika. Okay. It's one of my favorite uh, Twitter names I've ever seen. So oh, everybody go follow at NerdAnika. Thanks for coming on, everybody, and see you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.